welcome back to Create Space, a podcast that finds joy in the art of storytelling. This is my first episode back after a hiatus over the summer, but I'm back for the fall semester and we are so ready to hit the ground running. It is time, more than time, to get back to the weekly posting that you all grew to love. So I do have a few interviews queued up for the next couple of weeks, but first I've got something on my mind. So today we're going to talk about contentment and expectations and the moral value that we assign to tasks, ideas, decisions, etc. Now, I've been kicking this idea around for a while, and I would say just over the past couple of weeks, it has kind of settled into a full episode. So the foundation of this episode is a discussion of the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell about other people. So from my time going through cognitive behavioral therapy, and also from reading the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, I have found myself thinking a lot about just how much of our cognition is built on human constructs. There really isn't a whole lot that is just plain and simple fact. So much, so much of what we think and feel and do is steeped in perception and opinion. And the way that I've lived my life up until fairly recently is by using almost exclusively a thought system that is full, absolutely chock full of assumptions and judgments that are not based in fact, but are based entirely on human constructs and perception. Now, I don't think that's entirely a bad thing, right? Social and ideological constructs are how we organize our society. It's how we build community. It's how we maintain order. However, too much of that or perhaps misplaced assumptions and judgments can lead to unattainable standards, hypocritical expectations, and just overall, at least for me, a lack of contentment in who I am and what my place is in the world. So I mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT earlier, and we've discussed it on the show before. It's something that I'm really fascinated by, uh, and it's, it's wildly powerful. And it's been on my mind recently because this summer I recorded a podcast episode with Jessica Stong, whose coaching business is rooted in CBT. And that episode will be coming out in the next few weeks. So be on the lookout because she was an absolutely incredible interview. So CBT says that your thoughts guide your emotions, which lead to actions, and finally give you results. So what that means is that changing our thoughts about an experience can change everything. Reframing negative or critical thoughts to either neutral or or positive, if you can, will consequently change your emotions and behaviors, which will then dramatically shift the results you've been getting. So if you're not feeling content or you're feeling like you judge yourself or others quite harshly, listen to the rest of this episode because we're going to break some of these stories down. Now, I want to lead off by convincing you just how incredibly powerful our brains are. So you know the placebo effect, right? That's real, right? It works nearly all of the time. Research has proven it to work over and over again. And placebo is used in research trials all the time. 
oftentimes we look at this as a weakness, right? So like we say, oh, well, you know, we're so impressionable that we can feel like we don't have a headache anymore just because someone gave us a sugar pill and they told us it was ibuprofen. But did you hear what I just said? Our brains are literally powerful enough to heal a physical pain just through the power of thought. Now, in the case of placebo, sure, we're tricking ourselves, right? Or someone else is tricking us. But if we harness that power and intentionally work with it, I mean, we could be unstoppable, right? The way that we tell stories to ourselves and the way that we tell stories to others shapes our reality in the most literal sense of the word. The history of humankind is only through the perception of those who have recorded it. And the way that our brains are able to filter and organize information and provide meaning to ideas is unique and it's incredible and we can control it. I mean, did you hear that? We can control it. So the moment that we decide to take that power back and use it to make our lives better is the moment that we gain so much control and so much hope. When we accept our cognitive power, we accept that we can essentially construct whatever reality we want for ourselves. Now, at least the meaning that we derive from that reality anyways, right? So as we think about perception, I would like to talk about morality. Now, we all know what morality means, right? So morality is basically whether something is right or whether something is wrong, good or bad. And it's it's pretty important to have a moral code and a standard of conduct. I would argue we tend to attach moral judgment to a lot of things that really are morally neutral. So the first time I heard about something being morally neutral was from the book. Uh, it's by Casey Davis, and it's called How to Keep House While Drowning. And she discusses organization and keeping house and cleaning in a way that works for neurodivergent minds. So one of the very first things that she mentions is that there is no moral value to having or not having a clean home. Okay, so having a clean, clutter-free home doesn't make you a superior person. And having a cluttered or messy home doesn't make you inferior. There is literally no moral value associated with unloading the dishwasher. And there's no moral value associated with not hanging up your laundry directly after drying it. And I think when you really start to believe this idea, it can change your world. You know, we've been told forever that a clean house is better than a messy one. What Casey offers in her book instead is to focus on safety and function instead of moral judgment. So leaving toys all over the floor, for example, that's not a shameful act, but It is safer if we tidy up so that we don't trip and fall or step on a stray Lego. And similarly, it's not shameful or bad or anything like that to have a cluttered house. But it can be unsafe to leave out old food because it could attract bugs or rodents or mold or whatever, right? So safety and function. When we start to think of it in this way, it removes the shame. And it removes the judgment. And I've talked a lot about shame on this podcast, right? Because shame really does infiltrate so many things. And shame, as we've discussed, is an embodied emotion. It's something that you feel is you or becomes you. uh, And that shuts down 
a lot of really positive emotions and positive growth. So anytime we can remove shame and judgment, it's it's a good thing, right? So taking that shame away from not having a picture-perfect home can help you to have the space to prioritize items that actually do serve a functional or safety-based purpose instead of just doing what you've been told that you should be doing. So for example, Casey Davis also posts on her TikTok uh, regularly and I follow her there. And so she said on her TikTok that it is your responsibility as a parent to make sure that your children have clean clothes to wear. But it is not your responsibility as a parent to make sure that they never have dirty clothes. Now, how, how is that for a reframe, right? Then you can start to view laundry as a cycle instead of something that has to be completed. As long as there are clean clothes available at any given time, you're golden. If you also happen to have some clothes in the washer and another load in the dryer and a load or two or three in a laundry basket waiting to be folded and put away, that's okay. The responsibility is to provide clean clothes to wear for the family. That has been fulfilled. The rest of it is just that the clothes are at a certain point in the cycle. No moral value, no judgment. Now, similarly, from a safety perspective, you need to have clean dishes to eat off of, right? It's it's safer to eat food off of clean dishes. But that doesn't mean that it is inherently shameful to have dishes that need unloaded in your dishwasher or, you know, a stack of dishes soaking in the sink. Again, the focus is on function and safety and not on what you quote unquote should be doing. Uh, Let's look at one more house cleaning example. So this one is clutter. There's nothing wrong with clutter. That sounds maybe... I don't know, downright blasphemous to say, right? I mean, we've all been told, declutter, declutter, get rid of your stuff, make things, you know, tidier, whatever, whatever. But there's really nothing wrong, at least morally wrong with clutter. A clutter-free home is not inherently better or more virtuous than a cluttered home. What clutter even is, is relative, right? You have some people who are minimalists and would say that any knickknack on a shelf is clutter. You have other people that maybe verge on the edge of maximalist and they love stuff like that and their home feels uh, lived in and cozy when they have a lot of things to look at, right? So nothing inherently better or worse in either way of thinking. It's just what makes that person feel comfortable and feel happy. So what would be the functional or safety-based alternative here? Well, for me, I tend to focus better in a tidier space where everything has a home. I also tend to feel lighter or more refreshed, happier when at least the main living spaces are relatively uncluttered. So for me, that's a functional reason to tidy up, at least in the rooms where I spend a lot of time, right? No shame in not doing so, no judgment if it doesn't get done, but just recognizing that I do feel some benefits if I tidy up my space, it allows my space to feel more functional to me, and it's a positive consequence when I do it. So if we imagine what this looks like in practice, and and I'll say I, I tried this the other day with my kids, and you know it wasn't like, whoa, a whole new world, but I do think that they reacted slightly more positively Um, than what I have done in the past. So instead of saying, you know, clean up your room, like this is disgusting, look how messy it is. Like, how can you live like this? You can't even walk through your room. You know, that has a lot of shame and vitriol and judgment just laced into the words, right? But what I could say and what I tried saying was, you know, hey, we need to make sure that we take the trash out from your room so that bugs don't come into your room. And also let's, you know, pick up your toys so that you have more room to play if you want to and you don't trip if you wake up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. 
And that, to me at least, sounds so much better. We completely removed the moral judgment because quite frankly, it doesn't need to be there. We focused on the functionality of why we clean things. So let's continue the discussion of morality because I think this is just rather interesting. Something I ran across on social media was a creator who is in kind of the deconstruction thought realm. And they were talking about a concept called horizontal versus vertical morality. So what they were explaining was that a traditional vertical morality structure is when you base what is moral or not on whether an authority figure, so a person or a being or a deity, has told you that it is or it isn't okay. It is or it isn't moral. So it's an authority-based thought pattern. Now, conversely, horizontal morality is when you assess your actions based on how they directly affect other people. So in a vertical morality structure, you don't kill your neighbor because you've been taught by an authority figure that it's wrong to kill your neighbor, right? But in a horizontal morality structure, you don't kill your neighbor because you see that if you were to kill them, it would hurt your neighbor and your neighbor's family and your neighbor's friends. So you base your decision about morality on an intentional impact assessment. Now, likely, I think we all have a bit of both. We all have somewhat of a authority-based morality structure and somewhat of an impact-based morality structure. Um, but I think it's valuable to to talk about the differences between those and what that could mean. You know, so even if the rule is the same, don't kill your neighbor, how you get there can be important. And the video that I saw specifically was discussing this whole morality debate as it relates to organized religion. Uh, which is a really interesting topic, but it's not really what I want to get into today. I think that this concept applies in a lot of different ways. So one being parenting. A more traditional approach to parenting is you do what I say because I told you to, and I'm the parent and I'm in charge. However, as I was growing up and what my husband and I try to do now with our kids is always explain to them why we don't think they should be, be behaving in certain ways. And, and that's something that I really vividly remember from my childhood was that my mom always took the time to explain to me the impact that my behaviors had on other people. So it was never just because I said so. And honestly, I didn't always understand the, expl uh, the explanation. Sometimes it was over my head, <laughs> but most times I did grasp that the rules were there to keep everyone safe and comfortable and happy. And I understood that they weren't just arbitrary things that she was telling me to do because she was in charge, right? Now, I will say that due to that upbringing, uh, now one of my biggest frustrations as an adult is when there's a rule that doesn't seem to have a purpose. I mean, you all know what I'm talking about. You know, you're in an office setting or something and there's some random weird policy that you know probably served a purpose at some point in time, but now it has really no bearing on reality. And yet no one is bothered to change it because, you know, that's just how it's always been. That's the rule. We don't go against the rules. So I guess all of that to say these ideas about the power of our thoughts and being able to choose intentionally whether we assign moral value or not has got me thinking that maybe we assign moral value to too many things, you know, like like, okay, for example, I have a tendency to procrastinate. I'm pretty easily distracted. So there are times when, you know, let's say I have a three hour window to grade some 
student projects. And for whatever reason, I end up not doing that. Maybe I scroll social media, maybe I turn on Netflix, uh, whatever else I choose to do. So then after that time is over, I think to myself, I am so lazy. Like I squandered the time that I had today. I'm a bad instructor. Now what am I going to have to do? Well, now I'm going to have to grade in the evening when the kids are home. So that makes me a bad mom or, okay, so maybe I'll wait until the kids are asleep, but then that's my time with my husband. So now I'm a bad wife too. And, and so I spiral, I spiral into this thing where this one decision that I made to procrastinate, I have given so many moral implications when in reality, let's look at it from, from a functionality perspective. Okay. So I made a choice to ignore the thing that I didn't want to do, even though I had time to do it. Why did I make that choice? Well, likely it was, you know, related to dopamine. And I recognized that that choice of doing what needed to be done was not going to give me the dopamine hit that my brain wanted. uh, But doing something else that kind of like numbed me out or just was pleasurable in the moment seemed like a better idea. So, okay, so I did that. How does that affect me? Well, it means that I do have to find another time to complete that task because that grading does have to be done. And likely it's going to be a time in which I'd rather be doing something else. Now that's unfortunate, but it's not a moral failing. It's just a consequence of my action. And yes, there is an effect on other people associated with that decision as well. It, it might take some time away from my kids uh, or from my spouse, but it doesn't mean that I'm a morally bankrupt person because of it. So another example, this one's kind of totally different. And it's something that I have a pretty strong opinion on. And honestly, most not most, many people don't agree with me. Uh, but in thinking about impact and effect on others, I do have a pretty pretty strong opinion on it. So let's talk about attire and dress code. It, it is socially acceptable to wear certain things in certain situations, right? We all know that. You know, don't wear white to a wedding unless you're a bride and blah, 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 whatever, all the rules that we have. So let's look at one. Let's say the example of, you know, don't wear jeans to a job interview. And, and this would be depending on your industry, but by and large, a lot of places would hold this rule to be true. So let's dig, let's dig into that a little bit. Why isn't it socially acceptable to wear jeans to a job interview? Well, because it's kind of considered casual and you're supposed to be portraying an image of professionalism. Okay, so moving on, why are jeans considered casual? Well, I don't know exactly, but I suspect that it probably goes back to the fact that denim is a relatively tough fabric. So it's historically been worn for, uh, you know, more physically laborious tasks, maybe. But either way, let's look at that rule. If I wear jeans to a job interview, does it hurt or harm the interviewer in any way? No, it doesn't. Do jeans make me any less or more qualified for the job? No, not at all. So for me, in the sense of horizontal morality, I hate attire guidelines. I teach in jeans almost every day because I love denim. I feel comfortable in denim. So what? You know, maybe some students don't take me as seriously. I don't know. No one's no one's honestly ever told me that in five years of teaching. No one's ever told me that. And if they did, my response would be to them. Well, you know, will you learn more or will you learn better if I wear dress pants? Of course not. That's ludicrous, right? And in the same way that I'm not going to teach better if my students wear a certain thing. It doesn't impact me what they wear, and it won't impact them what I wear. So I use those two examples to say 
that I am actively trying to remove judgment from my everyday actions and the everyday actions of other people, right? So times when I have judged someone else for procrastinating and maybe found myself considering them lazy, or if I looked at someone and decided what I thought type of person that they were based on their attire. You know, we weave these narratives about people based on things that don't have any bearing on their character. And we weave narratives about ourselves based on things that don't have any bearing on our character. And a lot of this happens on kind of an unconscious level. And that really brings me to the final point of this podcast, which is the dreaded should. We have this almost unconscious and veritably endless list of things that we should be doing or should have done or ways that we should be acting or should be dressing or things that we should be saying or not saying. And what I challenge you all to do is dig into that list of shoulds that you keep for yourself or that you keep for other people and really look at what you're telling yourself about the standards that you should be aspiring to and the standards that you are holding others to. Because what I think that you'll find, or I should say what I have found, is I have started to dig into my own thoughts and my own shoulds, is that most of the things that I think should be a certain way don't really need to be that way. Most of the time it's because someone somewhere, some time down the line, told me, hey, it should be this way. Uh, Or even sometimes it's not that someone told me that, it's just that I inferred that based on what I saw. But when I look at the actual impact of whatever that innocuous standard is, it's not really all that important. Most of the shoulds on my list are similar to those outdated policies that I mentioned earlier, right? So something that maybe did serve a purpose a long time ago, probably did serve a purpose at some point, but they don't anymore. And also, you know, we've talked about this conversation kind of on a personal or individual level, but let's switch the conversation to more of a systemic level. There's a whole lot of implications at a system or societal level here uh, that we also need to think about. Sometimes, I would say many times, the standards or the shoulds were developed a long time ago, and they were developed explicitly to harm a certain group of people, marginalized people, right? And now we blindly follow that standard because That's how it's always been done. And we may not even realize the context in which that standard arose. And therefore, we're not noticing and we're not seeing the harm that is still being done to a historically marginalized community. So that's something definitely to be aware of, is that there are so many things that we do simply because it's always been done that way. And taking the time to dig into that and say, is it really helping? Does it matter? Is there a better way to do this? Is really, to me, the road to feeling more content, the road to being intentional about the stories that we're telling and the stories that we're believing. And that, that's, what I, that's what I really want to say to you today, is make sure that the stories that you're telling and that the stories that you choose to believe are supporting you and they're supporting others in the way that you want them to. Make sure that they are helping you to be the human you want to be and that you're not allowing your contentment and your decision-making and your moral code to be decided by rules and regulations or by other people. And make sure it's not being decided by things that you don't even have a context for, right? 
Some shoulds are good. Some are important. I am not suggesting that you get rid of every standard or expectation that you hold for yourself or others, but I am suggesting that we all take a minute and we assess and decide and be intentional about what is actually worth attaching morality and attaching value to and what isn't. What is negatively impacting others and what isn't? I think there are many things that I worry about that don't impact others in the slightest, and there are many things that I don't worry about at all that really are negatively affecting those around me. And I don't have the space to think about those things because I'm giving so much attention to the other things that I worry about that aren't impacting others, right? So I'm challenging myself to dissect the stories that I use to construct reality and to be a lot more intentional about which ones I choose to keep and which ones I choose to rewrite because it is up to me and it is up to you. And that's pretty empowering and freeing. If you decide to try something similar in your own world, I would love it if you let me know how it goes. I would I would love to hear about it. I think that's really cool. So thank you all for being here. Thank you for entertaining my whim on this episode. Like I said, it's something that's just been around in my mind for a while. And I've been trying to figure out exactly how to put it into words. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are about it. Thanks for being here with me on Create Space. It's an absolute pleasure as always. And I'll see you all next week.